You are now listening to the June 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Starting last time, we have been reviewing the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. We began with Jeroboam, the first king, and reached Jehoram, the ninth king. Today, we will pick up from Jehu, the tenth king, and go all the way to the last and nineteenth king, Hosea. Jehu became the tenth king of Israel by getting rid of Jehoram, the son born to Ahab and Jezebel. He proceeded to render judgment against Jezebel and 70 descendants of Ahab who were in royal lineage. You might say he cleaned out the house of Ahab. In fact, it was God's judgment against the house of Ahab using Jehu as his instrument. Jehu went further as God's instrument. He eradicated Baal, and the worshippers of Baal from Israel. For all he did, God told Jehu that he did right in the sight of God and promised him that his children would sit in the throne of Israel to four generations. Unfortunately, however, the Bible also tells us that in the end, Jehu did not follow the laws of the Lord with all his heart. Though Jehu eradicated the despicable practice of Baal worshipping, and cleaned out the house of Ahab, he failed in the most important thing, worshiping God truthfully and faithfully. Because of that, God eventually turned over Israel's land on the east of the Jordan River to Hazael, king of Aram. After Jehu died, his son Jehoahaz became the eleventh king of Israel. The Bible tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not leave from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, meaning that he allowed his people to worship other gods in high places in Dan and Bethel. Because of the repeated idol worshiping of Jehoahaz and the people of Israel, God gave Israel to Aram during the reign of the Aramean king Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael. When things became really bad and Jehoahaz could not bear the oppression from the king of Aram anymore, he cried out to God in prayers. The gracious God listened to his prayers and delivered Israel from the hand of Aram by sending them a deliverer. Unfortunately, however, though he experienced God's deliverance, Jehoahaz did not turn back to God in the end. He died in his sin of idol-worshipping and doing evil in the sight of God. After Jehoahaz died, his son Jehoash became the twelfth king of Israel. What was different about Jehoash was that he greatly depended on prophet Elisha for his counsel. That is why Jehoash became very fearful when the prophet Elisha became ill 
and everyone expected him to die from it. Jehoash was afraid without Elisha Israel might fall. Then Elisha showed Jehoash that the might of God would be with Jehoash. However, Jehoash lacked faith and zeal, and when Elisha told him to pick up the arrows and strike the ground, he only struck three times. To that, Elisha told Jehoash that he would win only three times against the Aramean army, and he passed away. After the death of Elisha, Jehoash went on to win three times in the wars against the Aramean army, just as Elisha had prophesied. We know that much, but the Bible does not record how he lived afterwards or how he died. The Bible only tells us that Jehoash was a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Even though Jehoash experienced the might of God and a fulfillment of a promise, he ended up doing evil before God and did not turn back to him. After Jehoash died, his son Jeroboam II became the 13th king of Israel. He reigned over Israel for 41 long years. That was the longest among all the kings of Israel. Under his reign, Israel enjoyed peace and prosperity. With God's grace, he expanded the territory of Israel as far as during the time of King Solomon. Of course, all his successes were really not on account of Jeroboam II himself being an upright and righteous king before God. Rather, the Bible assesses that Jeroboam II was a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not make Israel depart from the sin of worshiping idols. But then, why did God allow Israel to be successful and expand the land by winning wars and becoming prosperous? 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 tell us why. It was because the affliction of Israel was very deep and bitter, and God simply used the hands of Jeroboam II to deliver them. The Bible is telling us that it was not because of Jeroboam's leadership, but because of God's grace and mercy that Israel enjoyed a period of prosperity. After Jeroboam II died, his son Zechariah became king. He reigned over Israel for only six months. The Bible records that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his ancestors, and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. Zechariah was killed by a conspirator, Shalom. Shalom struck down Zechariah, his king, in front of the people and became the 15th king of Israel. This fulfilled God's promise to Jehu that his descendants to the fourth generation would sit on the throne of Israel. That would be Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah. The Bible does not say much about Shalom, son of Jabesh, who became the king after killing Zechariah. Based on the Assyrian record, we know Shalom was not of royal descent. The Assyrian record indicates Shalom was a son of an insignificant man. Shalom was subsequently killed by his own commander of the army, Menahem, only a month after he became king. 
So Menahem became the 16th king of Israel. He reigned over Israel for 10 years and he died. He was a brutal king. He slaughtered all those who did not accept him as king. The Bible assesses him, like others before him, as a king who did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. After Menahem died, his son, Pekahiah, became the 17th king of Israel. There is also not much recorded about him. The Bible only tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. Pekahiah was then killed by his officer of the army, Pekah, two years after he became king. The Bible assesses Pekah, who became the 18th king of Israel, by conspiracy as a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. He was the penultimate king of Israel and worshipped idols during his reign and did evil before God. He did not seek God and ruled over Israel as he pleased. Eventually, Pekah was killed by Hoshea, son of Elah, 20 years after he became king. Until then, Israel's throne changed five times in ten years. People saw one treason after another, and Israel was headed to its doom. The Bible tells us that Hoshea, who became the 19th king of Israel, after killing Pekah, did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. The Bible does not have a lot to say about Hoshea. The Bible only explains in detail that Israel fell because the people of Israel worshipped idols as other gods just like the foreigners that did not know God. They went astray and did all kinds of evil, despite being God's people. The details are recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 18. God wanted so much for Israel to come back to him. God spoke continually through the prophets to counsel them and guide them. To discipline them, God would sometimes cause them to suffer by raising foreign countries, but God would always show mercy and deliver them. In the end, though, Israel did not turn back to God, and God had to judge Israel by raising Assyria. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Effort Matters. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. It was about 15 years ago, I was visiting a member of our church. And as we were closing the meeting, I remember asking her, how can I pray for you? She immediately said, well, you can pray for my son. has been on and off drugs pretty much his whole life. He's always been sort of wandering around, never had a job consistently. Just really kind of a a tragic life. And um, as I was about to start the prayer, she said, oh, but you know, by the way, he, he is saved and all. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, he was baptized when he was 10 years old. Uh, He was at some kind of children's thing. They baptized him. And uh, he hasn't really been back to a church since. 
But I just know that, you know, once saved, always saved. And I remember thinking as she said that, like, wow, I mean, that hits me a little bit strange because I thought once saved, always saved meant something else. I thought it meant basically perseverance of the saints, that God preserves us and we persevere because of God's grace in our lives, that we will make it to the end, that God assures us that, that that's a kind of promise that we really bank on. But she seemed to have another understanding of this. She seemed to understand that once saved, always saved, and I think many mean it this way, that you can have Jesus as Savior of your life without having Him as your Lord. That you can experience a kind of saving grace that comes with all of those promises without having any kind of experience of transforming grace. And it was in that moment that I I really began to understand that there's something different theologically that's going on here. Where the Apostle Peter argues that the Christian life commands us to make every effort to live a virtuous life, to live a morally excellent life. Now, if you're just joining us, I want to catch you up to speed. This is a letter that we believe was written by the Apostle Peter, whose name is on it. He likely wrote this to the mostly Gentile audience that his first letter was written to, to those churches of the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And it seems that these mostly Gentile Christians received this letter as Peter is sensing that he will soon follow Christ into death for his faith. Jesus told him he would do this, and he senses that that day is coming near. And what Peter seems to want to do is to leave these Christians and future generations with a kind of written testimony, a reminder of the things that they need to know as they are anticipating that there will be, just as there have been in the past, false teachers and prophets that are coming and teaching things like, Jesus isn't coming back, right? It's been a while. I don't know if Jesus is coming back. We don't believe he's coming back. And therefore, second, it doesn't matter how you live. You can live and indulge in sin because it's not as though we're waiting for anything else that's going to happen. See, Peter's adamant throughout that their beliefs about Jesus is coming back will shape their everyday lives, It will evidence whether or not they truly have been united to the morally excellent Son of God. Now, Peter launches this letter with a call to moral excellence in verses 3 to 4 that we saw last week. In fact, it's part of a a bigger section, verses 3 to 11, where he is arguing that you need to live a godly life. And we're picking up this morning in verses 5 to 7, where our big idea is this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's that Jesus calls us to pursue moral excellence with grace-fueled effort and sweat. Now we'll notice first that grace precedes and fuels our every effort. Grace precedes and fuels our every effort. If you're reading through commentaries on 2 Peter, you'll notice that some actually question whether or not the apostle could have written this because they view it as kind of just a moralistic letter that is graceless. And yet, as you look at this, you'll notice that there are commands that that might lead you to think that if you're just dropping in and you read something like, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. But let's not forget the grace. The grace in verse 1 where he said, we have obtained a faith of equal standing to the apostles. A grace gift. 
And we don't want to skim over that little phrase in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort. Because it carries tremendous theological import for today, every day, and the last day. It's the ground and power of everything that follows this little phrase, for this very reason. See, Peter's command here depends on the prior condition that is described in verses 3 to 4. That's the reason, the rationale that he wants us to look to before we move on. It's that at conversion, our morally excellent Savior called us to Himself, granting us all things for life and godliness, that we might look more and more like His divine nature. See, Peter's reason for effort is God's saving and transforming grace. Peter says, no one has true saving relational knowledge of Jesus and walks away unchanged. We all need to be changed more and more into the image of Jesus. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul tells us the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says that we are being transformed, all of us, into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus is changing us right now. He's transforming us. See, Jesus transforms us to make us look more and more like Him. More and more like Him, from one degree to the next. You might be thinking, well, somebody like over there seems to be moving like 10 degrees to my one, but all of us are being changed into the image of Jesus. And that will happen until the day when Jesus returns. We will not reach our goal until Jesus comes back. You might be thinking like, I've gotten really good at this whole perfection thing, and uh, I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't really even need to show up for me to reach my goal. That's not true for any of us, right? Like if you're thinking there's people like that in the room, that's not true. We all know that we need Jesus to show back. In 1 John 3, 2, we are told that it's on that day that we will become like what we have been made to be. He says there, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. None of us have seen what it is that we are to be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. I can't wait for that day. See, Peter is a grace God, just like Jesus, just like Paul, just like John and the rest of the Scriptures. The indicative of God's grace in verses 3 to 4 grounds the imperative for us to make every effort in verses 5 to 7. See, Peter says knowing grace in the face of Jesus Christ leads us towards showing Christ with our lives. The very reason is actually, this very reason is actually the only reason that we can make every effort. If we don't get this reason right, we can't move forward. No saving grace means no fuel for effort, no power for change. But saving grace comes with the promise of transformation. In his book, Transforming Grace, Jerry Bridges says this, We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is under the reign of God's grace. That's a good deal, right? See, the grace of God provides a rationality for Christian effort. Because notice second, Christians make every effort to supplement faith. Make every effort. You'll notice this in the second half of verse 5. See, the saving and transforming grace of God grounds and fuels the Christian making every effort. Notice what he says. For this very reason, 
make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. See, Christians are, we're to make every effort. That means to do our best, to try as hard as possible to supplement our faith with virtue. This word supplement simply means to add something to something that already exists. And and that thing that exists is the faith that we have obtained that's been given to us at conversion. But notice here that that faith is, is not just, as some have said, Christian doctrine that we have received an objective kind of reality out there. But as we saw in verse 1, it's a subjective experience of believing in Christ. It's a personal trust that one has put in Christ at conversion. Now this is the thing that has been dropped into our laps by grace. See, grace compels us to sweat and labor to be like Jesus, who is making us like Himself. Now don't miss this. This is important. You will not become more godly or look more like Jesus and moral excellence if you don't get to work. If you're thinking to yourself, I said I believe in Jesus. I don't think I need to go to church. I don't think I need to read my Bible. I don't think I need to pray. I don't think I need to do anything. I'm going to sit here on my couch and just wait for it to come to me. It's not going to work. See, I think this speaks without the explicit language of the process of sanctification, where we are becoming more holy like Jesus, but here giving Jesus credit as a source of this saving and transforming grace. We are holy. We are being made holy. We shall be holy when Jesus comes and returns to consummate all things. See, we're, we're God's people, and we increasingly look like Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. But catch this, while we do not contribute anything to saving grace. Did y'all hear that? We do not contribute anything to saving grace. Whereby God justifies us. We do make every effort to look like Jesus through the process of sanctification. Now maybe you sense some warning lights going off. You're thinking danger, Will Robinson. It sounds like he's saying that, you know, we need to, to work. But doesn't Jesus say Christians much must work in other places? I mean, aren't we told by Jesus himself that we need to strive to abide in John 15, 4, where he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. See, rootedness in Jesus leads to fruitfulness to the kingdom, and we strive to abide. And Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to act for his good pleasure. And what about Hebrews 12, 14? We are to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Just think about this. The words that are being used throughout the testimony of the Scriptures. Grace compels us to abide, to work, to strive. And as James says, grace without works is dead. Grace fuels and gives life to our efforts. And hang on. Grace also sanctifies our efforts. I think this is just something I need to add in this moment 
Just to remind you, you might be thinking like, I can put my efforts forth, but they're never good enough, and so they won't be acceptable. And that is true outside of Christ. And yet in Christ, God sanctifies our efforts in him such that they are no longer filthy rags, but acceptable and pleasing to the Father. Just important to note, as a believer, there's a sense in which God takes pleasure in the deeds of his children. See, I think some Christians become immobilized by a sense that our efforts are never good enough. And so we need to remind each other constantly, you're not saved by your works. We're all sinners and all. And yet in the midst of that, we need to be reminded that God also has not just left us in his sin, but we have actually been adopted into the family of God. And he actually wants to display his glory in you by the power of his son, Jesus Christ. He wants to make you to look more like God the Father so that you might testify to the grandeur of your creator, God. That's a high calling. It's glorious. We don't want to lose sight of that. See, God takes pleasure in the faithful efforts of his children. Now, I want to make, to be careful that we make sure we're on the same page. And the reason is, when you get into this topic, sometimes I feel like we're sort of um, trying to to be careful about what Martin Luther describes. Uh, He talks about the world, and he says, you know, the world is kind of like a drunken peasant who, if he tries to jump on the saddle of a horse on one side, tends to sort of fall off on the other, right? And so as I'm going through this, I'm thinking, you know, some of us just need to be reminded that it's a good thing to live a godly life. And you're like jumping back up on the the saddle because you were thinking like, I don't think it matters if I'm obedient. Now it does. And then maybe you slip off to the other side and you think like, oh, I can earn God's favor through my obedience, right? I can earn salvation through my obedience. That's not what we're saying. See, on one side of the horse, you have a kind of Catholic church teaching that says that we are saved or justified by faith and works. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not saying that you're saved by faith and works, but instead that we are saved by a faith that works. Important distinction. See, that's a small distinction with eternal ramifications. Our works are filthy rags when it comes to salvation. Full stop. But if you're coming from a Catholic background, you know their doctrine teaches that people are saved by faith and works. And that's not just the Catholic faith. It's the same thing you see in Mormonism, in the Muslim religion, and other religions as well. It's all about what you can do, what kind of things you can do to ultimately someday, hopefully, win favor with God. But we believe that people are saved not by faith and works, but a faith that works. Saving grace, it comes with transforming grace that calls us to abide in Christ, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. See, Peter says grace fuels our efforts to look like our morally excellent Christ, who is the very image of the invisible God. Christian, the power of Christ is at work in you to restore what was lost in Eden what was lost in the garden. And it's doing that. He is doing that. The Holy Spirit, the person of God in you, transforming you until the consummation that's coming when Jesus returns. You are being transformed. So our our work matters again. The things that we do that we're, we're seen as not worthy are now seen as being something meaningful. It's not like Everything is vanity like Solomon looks upon under the sun if we are now in the sun, Jesus Christ. Everything has meaning. So the other side of the horse, so to speak, you know, you got works righteousness on one side, 
The other side, you might think to yourself, well, it just doesn't matter how I live. And you might be reading a text like this and you think, well, Peter's just a legalist. You know, really what we need to do is just kind of let go and let God. Now, if you've heard of this theology before, it's a very popular theology. It comes out of a little town known as Keswick, spelled with a silent W. Don't understand that. In the 1800s, and, and they basically had a kind of theology that was described as a kind of second blessing that would come to some believers. In other words, there are kind of two tiers of spiritual experience, and you've probably seen this at play in lots of denominations like Pentecostalism or Wesleyanism. But basically, the idea here is that you have kind of two experiences as a believer. You have one that's called getting saved, and then you have another that's getting serious. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a basic Christian, but I haven't had that second experience where I get serious and actually go to work. Peter's talking about the serious Christians here. I'm still just in the saved bunch. They use other language. Language like the reality that you are someone who is moving from a defeated life to a victorious life. A lower life to a, a higher life. A shallow life to a deeper life. From fruitfulness to abundance. Fruitlessness to abundance. From carnal Christianity to spiritual Christianity. And having Jesus merely a Savior to having Jesus as your Lord. This has influenced all kinds of folks. It influenced John Wesley, as I said before, Charles Finney, Charles Ryrie, Amy Carmichael. But catch this. According to the Scriptures, faith in Jesus comes with this promise of sanctification that we will and shall look more and more like Jesus until Jesus gets back, and then we look fully like Jesus. Does that make sense? Are we following? Are we tracking? See, faith is not mere mental assent. Either is like free grace theology teaches, where, you know what, I just imagine myself as a Christian, therefore I am. There's never any kind of change in my life. That's fine. That's not what we believe. See, God sanctifies those he, he justifies. That's a promise. Just to be clear, again, trying to bring clarity, I do believe in deathbed conversions. I believe in that. I just don't believe in spiritually dead Christians. I believe that if you really have been connected to the root, there is going to necessarily be fruit in your life that shows it. Now, there's a third thing that we see here. Make every effort to grow in these virtues, these eight virtues. And this is really where we want to spend most of our time. Peter's list of virtues. Now, we know historically lots of people have given lists of virtues Ben Franklin, famously at 20 years old, created his own list of 13 virtues that he was going to use to sort of shape his life. It was a good deal. He had things like, one of them was cleanliness, right? I'm going to try to make sure I don't stink and then I take a bath. My clothes are clean. Uh, by the way, teenagers, great rule, especially you guys out there. Not speaking to anybody specifically in my house. But also, also, if you think about it, uh, he has another good virtue that, that I found interesting. Number 13, which is, I want for myself to, to pursue being humble, just like Socrates and Jesus. Fascinating. Kind of humility that follows the example of Jesus, but no sense of the need for being uniquely united to Christ to help empower you towards the humility that you long for. Do you see the difference? Peter's not like Benjamin Franklin. He says you must be united to Christ if you want to experience the kinds of 
virtues that we're talking about here. And you'll notice this eight virtues, they really stand out. I don't take this list that we're about to look at as an all-inclusive list, but Peter says all of them, not just one of them, makes us look more like Jesus and moral excellence as we grow in each of these. Now, the, the form is what they call a sorites or a step-by-step chain that culminates in a climax, which is here at the end, love. Now, you'll You'll notice that Peter begins with faith and he ends up with love as that climax. It really reads a lot like if you remember 1 Corinthians 13. But there's going to be some overlap with some of these virtues between what Peter speaks of and and the Greco-Roman culture and what it values. So let's put some grace-fueled effort and sweat into growing in each of these, okay? So look there again with me at verses 5 to 7, what he says. He says, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Let's look at these one by one. First, the virtue of faith. It speaks of trusting God. And you'll remember that, again, verse 1 spoke of faith as an obtained faith of equal standing with the apostles. So this is, I believe, faith initially is a grace gift at conversion that's given to us. But faith also means that you trust God more than you trust yourself. This is really what faith is. It means you trust God more than you trust yourself with your life, both today and tomorrow and every day until the last day and forevermore. I I trust God's word more than I trust any other word. Faith changes really everything for you. It is the beginning and it is the, the source of all things that come after. See, this is not Peter's version of you do you, right? Like that you need the gift of faith. He's not saying like, you're kind of fine, so just do you. And I'm sure that's going to be really brilliant and beautiful. I can't wait to see what art you come up with for who you're going to be. And second, notice he says, Virtue. You're adding to your faith virtue. This is moral excellence. It is the the virtue virtue. I know you're like, there are eight virtues, but that one says virtue. So how is that different than the other virtues? Well, it's because it speaks of moral excellence. You'll remember that this word's been used already before. Jesus called us to his own moral excellence back in verse 3. Same word. And Jesus calls us to his moral excellence and calls us to make every effort to moral excellence. Now, this really reminds me when you think about the fact that he's just saying something that he just said in verse 3 that God gives us and then moves here to something that we're called to do. It reminds me of that famous line from Augustine who said, Oh Lord, command what you will and give what you command. See, Peter says, God has called us to his own moral excellence. We've been united with the morally excellent Savior. And yet here he's saying, I want you to practice this attribute, union with the divine, morally excellent Christ. It comes with the promise that we have, have, have all things for life and godliness. So Christian, Jesus' effectual call to you, to himself, it is creating what he demands. Now let me just ask you, do you know where you specifically are morally lacking? Do you know that you are morally lacking? 
I'm just assuming that as I read the text saying that we need to pursue moral excellence, it seems to assume that we're not morally excellent yet. So do we know the places that we, we don't meet the moral excellence of Christ? Do you know the, the names and addresses of your sin struggles? Do you know that you should even be pursuing that? I mean, if you're not killing sin, I, I believe you're likely coddling it, whether you know it or not. If you're, you're not killing it, you're feeding it. And if you don't kill it, then eventually it's going to kill you. Do you lack trust in God in some specific way with your money or your honey? That's your wife. Is there a way that you're not trusting God in, in relationship to how you spend money or how you save money? Is there some way in which you find yourself having a, a sort of sinful trust and confidence in money that's almost godlike? Do you find the way that you treat your wife as not being a way that reflects the moral excellence of Jesus Christ? Are you shady with the truth? Are you morally excellent as an employee or a landlord or a tenant? And maybe it's that you look morally excellent on the outside. I know people in the past who have been like, man, that guy really has it together. And then their life blows up, and you're like, what happened there? There was a lot that was going on in a place that no human eye could see, but God saw all along the way. There were sins of the heart, things they coveted, lust that they had for other women, things that, that maybe no human saw, but God saw. Maybe it's that you struggle with anger, or bitterness, or lust towards others, and God sees. Let me just encourage you this morning, as you want to hide under the pew, Jesus wants more for you. Jesus loves you in Christ, and transformation is possible. It's possible. It's the, it's the lie of Satan that wants you to believe that you can't change. The truth is, Jesus tells us we can my feeling says I can't. My Lord says I can. I'm going to trust my Lord even when I can't believe it with my feelings. We all can look more like Jesus. I don't think Peter's saying this just because he thought it was a nice thing to say. I don't know that he won friends with this. See, knowledge, third, can speak of knowledge about God or knowing God. You can know about Jesus without knowing Jesus. But you can't know Jesus without knowing about him, longing to know more about him. Here in 3.18, Peter seems to be speaking specifically of knowing about God. Uh, there you'll remember that he exhorts Christians at the very end of the letter, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know more about God? Well, we can learn about God in creation. We know, we, we find that in Psalm 119 and elsewhere, that we are able to actually, in, in Psalm 19, that we can know God through the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Sky above proclaims His, His excellence. But we also find through the Scriptures that the knowledge that comes through creation is really fuzzy, kind of like a black and white TV with those bunny ears. Have you ever heard of black and white TV? Some of you are like, what's that? Before you watch TV on your phone, it's just not as clear the reception is just, it doesn't quite give us the images. It helps us put the story together. See, we really need the 3D Dolby surround clarity of God's Word in the Bible to interpret the world around us. Obeying God's Word grows our knowledge of God as well. We learn to 
pray by praying. We learn how to endure faithfully by enduring faithfully when things are difficult. There's a way in which obedience helps us learn more about God and ourselves and the world around us. Knowledge also comes through community. Jesus gifted the church with teachers and preachers as well as folks with gifts of service and generosity and encouragement. None of us perfectly depicts the moral excellence of Jesus individually. We are all students of Christ, but we do display his moral perfections better in community as we learn from the strengths of those around us. So how are we working at growing in knowledge, though? Are you working, like, sweating to know more about God and know God in Christ? See, Jesus has called us to this. So how are you doing it? How are you working to know more about Christ? See, Christians... We'll read, we'll study, we'll spend time with God's people. We'll be transformed in the image of Jesus to their dying day or to when Jesus comes back. Fourth, self-control. Self-control is also one of those fruits of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5, 23 and elsewhere. Uh, Here we have some overlap with Greek culture. Culture that valued self-restraint. Now this word is is interesting. It it normally, according to Richard Bauckham, is a word that that spoke of sexual restraint, though it didn't always speak of this. It normally did. And so here, I believe that what he's saying is we need to have self-control in all kinds of areas, at least. Now, uh, self-control would be in areas like food. Maybe an area that you struggle with is alcohol and drunkenness. Maybe some of you in the past or, or even presently are fighting with some kind of addiction to substance. Maybe it's your tongue that you struggle with. A tongue that the Bible says can be a lot like, can make you a lot like either an arsonist or a firefighter, right? Like James says, like our tongue can be like a spark that causes a massive fire. We can go scorched earth on people with our our words, can hurt people like arsonists. Or it can be like a firefighter who shows up with a big hose and says, I see a fire, I'm going to put it out, I'm going to bring peace. Like, what are we going to be? I think we want to be more like a firefighter. But also, Peter likely has, in this context, an eye out for the false teachers who we will find later seem to be saying it doesn't matter how you live, especially and particularly in the way that it comes with sexual relationships. We need to be super careful and vigilant and fight and make every effort to make sure we have self-control with the way that we view sex. Okay, we got to move. Steadfastness. Steadfastness speaks of the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances, the ability to endure. This is perseverance under trial. See, God sovereignly preserves his people who persevere in the faith. Peter's audience would face persecution from without with the Roman government, which would eventually take Peter's very life. He's writing to them. The church would face conflict from within as they watch people leave, chasing after false teachings teachings like Jesus isn't coming back or it doesn't matter how you live. And Jesus uses sufferings in our lives to purify us, to cause us to see the value of the things of this world in their proper light as we await the new heavens and the new earth. I think all of us know an older saint who glows with endurance in the gospel. You know what I'm talking about? That older saint that has been faithful for decades 
And how often have you had a conversation with that saint and it's come out at some point that there's been some tragedy, some brokenness, some difficulty, many difficulties that they have endured through that has resulted in the glow that is before you that is otherworldly. Endurance. Let us all endure. Endure. Endure all kinds of persecutions for our faith. Endure a life of singleness that you did not expect. Endure the loss of a spouse or a child. Endure the loss of a job. All of these things knowing that Jesus is using them to shape you into his image, one of endurance. See, enduring faithfully grows our faith. Six, godliness. Godliness is striking here. Because you'll remember that Peter has already said that Jesus' divine power has granted them all things pertaining to life and godliness. Back in verse 3. And again, God has given the godliness he requires. Do you see it? There's grace here. This speaks of of piety or good worship. Same thing that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 2.2 where he says that we are called to live a life that pleases God. We become like that which we worship. Either God in heaven, looking like his very son, or we, we worship other things than God, that cause us to look like far less than what he created us to be. We don't have healthy, functioning families when, as husbands, our jobs become our gods. The vehicle that we use for praise to the neglect of our family. We don't look like what we've been created to look like when we are worshiping things like food or alcohol. We, We don't look godly. We look less godly. So we need to make sure that we are creating that we are worshiping Jesus who is creating in us the image of the invisible God. Seventh, brotherly love. This describes the way that Christians ought to show particular care for one another, especially in the context of, of a local church. See, God's love transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We are a new people called by God. We are God's people, holy unto Him. And he has adopted us into his family as full heirs of his promises. That means that we are a family based on blood. And we're not talking about like bloodline, like, you know, your family, your heredity family. We're talking about those who are connected by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. He created a new family. And when we put our faith in Christ, we become part of that family. Our family collectively makes every effort to look more and more like Jesus We're a family that is here really to reflect the glory of Christ to a lost and dying world. Clearly, the the false teachers that Peter has warned of are not practicing the 61 and others of the New Testament and Christian community. They don't love one another as Christ loved them by laying down their life for them. They are living self-indulgent lives. They're saying, you do you, and they're doing it to the full. And it doesn't look like Christ. But we are all growing together. And here's the good news. If you're looking and you're thinking like, man, I'm looking for the perfect people. I just haven't found them yet. Good news is, if he can love people like us, he might love people like you too. Eight, this list ends with love. Tom Schreiner, writing of of this verse in his commentary, said, love is the goal of Christian instruction. That's the goal. It's not that we get like really big heads with knowledge such that we can't even run straight without toppling over. It's love. It's the most excellent way in 1 Corinthians 12, 31 to 13. It's the virtue that sums up all the other virtues in Colossians 3, 14. And anyone who loves will possess the other qualities that Peter just mentioned. 
See, the false teachers are lacking in faith and love, and hence, they are not genuine believers at all. So as we grow in all of these, we will love God. We will love our church members, our neighbors, and even our enemies in a way that more clearly reflects the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's what I think he's doing. He's saying, Jesus calls us, Peter's saying, Jesus calls us to pursue moral excellence with grace-fueled effort and sweat. So let's get to work. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you have sent us your son, Lord. We thank you that we have a morally excellent Savior, that he's not one who has shady character. He's one that has character that we want to reflect to the nations. And Father, we confess this morning that we don't have that character. Some of us might have heard this message and might have thought about the nature of all of the virtues and the way that we're failing, Lord. We pray that in those moments that we would look steadily at Jesus Christ. Father, we are only accepted because of him. But Father, we also pray that we would look at the beautiful promise that has come to us here, that you will transform and shape us more into the image of your Son. That it's not just something we do, it's something that you are doing through our efforts. And Father, we pray that you would make us more and more like Christ. Help us to more and more show truthfully the glories of the Savior who came and laid down his life for us and was raised from the dead and who is coming back with the promise that one day we shall fully and truly look as he is. It's the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen. Come 
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello everyone, it's Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart. In today's Prayer After God's Own Heart, we'll be discussing a difficult matter. When I say a difficult matter, I don't mean that it's difficult to understand, but that it's difficult to carry out this action. For me and most church members, it's something that's always lingering in our hearts. It's forgiveness. Some time ago when I was doing a study on prayer, I learned that when our prayers are not being answered and we feel disconnected with God, many times it's because we haven't forgiven someone. When we haven't forgiven someone and pray with the heart of hatred, then God will not gladly receive that prayer. The Bible talks about forgiving others many times. It also talks about the lack of forgiveness and how that impacts our relationship with God. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14-15, through 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew chapter 18 tells the story of the man who owed 10,000 bags of gold. Verse 35 says, If we don't forgive our brother from our heart, then our heavenly Father will keep us in prison until we repay all our debt. This shows how important it is to forgive others. However, for some reason, we do not seem to take Jesus' warning to heart. If we believe that Jesus' word is the word of truth, then we must believe that when we don't forgive others, then Father God will also not forgive us. If we believe this, then it should compel us to forgive others just as Jesus said. Is it possible to forgive that hateful person who caused pain and hardship? We at times can have so much animosity against someone we may think, that we would rather lose God's blessings for our lives than forgive them. Why did God tell us to forgive even though it's so difficult and seemingly impossible? When we think about the gospel, we know that we must surely forgive. Last time, we looked into David's prayer. He admitted his sin and said a prayer of repentance. Such a prayer was a prayer after God's own heart. In Psalm chapter 32, David sings of the suffering of the one who hasn't been forgiven of one's sin and the joy of the one whose sin has been forgiven. This is what David confessed in Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 through 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. When he didn't confess his sin and kept it to himself, He said his bones wasted away through his groaning. Also, he confessed that God's hand was heavy on him and his strength was sapped. That's how much he suffered. However, when he confessed his sin to God and received forgiveness, his circumstances completely changed. 
This is Psalm chapter 32, verses 5 through 7. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. A person who is forgiven of his sin does not fear the rising of the mighty waters. God's hand is no longer heavy on him, and now he is in God's arms and God is his hiding place. A person who is forgiven of his sin comes out of sadness, suffering, and darkness. He has joy and boldness and dwells within God who is the light. In this way, those who have experienced the joy of forgiveness can forgive those who sinned against them. Only those who have experienced forgiveness can forgive. When advised to forgive, there are some who say, You don't know what that person did to me. You can't even imagine. If you were me, then you would not be able to forgive as well. Yes, I'm sure they feel that way. I'm sure they face great hardship and feel like they can't forgive someone. However, this is not a matter of how much pain someone else gave us. It's a matter of how we receive such great forgiveness from God. We know very well how much pain the other person gave us. However, we don't realize how much pain we gave God. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 5 through 6 say, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was whipped and punished because of us. The person who gave us pain definitely hurt us, but is that pain greater than the pain we gave Jesus? Jesus willingly suffered and died for us. The person who has given us pain has not caused us to suffer unto death. That person might have given us pain that seemed to kill us, but that person didn't actually kill us. Jesus forgave us even though our sin cost him his life. Not only did he forgive us, but he invited us to his kingdom. While we were still enemies, he proved his love through his death. When Jesus was at the cross, he asked God to forgive those who crucified him. Stephen, who experienced Jesus' forgiveness, prayed for those who were stoning him. Here is Acts chapter 7, verses 59 through 60. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Whether or not we are able to forgive someone is not based on the severity of the person's offense toward us. Rather, it is based on how we ourselves have been forgiven by God from such a great sin. I hope we don't look at the other person, but to the Lord who forgave us. Then we have no choice but to forgive. This is what the children of God, who have received such great salvation and forgiveness of sin, should do. Here is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43-45. through 45. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us truly reveals that Jesus is Lord of our life and most certainly is a prayer after God's own heart. I hope we will not look at our enemies but to our Lord who forgave us and offer up prayers after God's own heart. This concludes today's edition of Prayers After God's Own Heart. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known and see We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.